I, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rick Gerhardt. I'm an elder here at Antioch. I'm also on the board at Kilns College and, uh, and, and do some teaching there. And when Ken allows me to, to speak to you here, he doesn't really, it, it's kind of carte blanche. I can talk about whatever I want to. Um, it, it's kind of an unspoken thing, but uh, I, I think the only guideline I really have is that I can't exceed Ken's record for how many people will walk away from Antioch because of what's shared here on a Sunday morning. <laughs> and I think that record of Ken's is about 30 people. Okay, so uh, I'm fairly comfortable. I'm not going to talk this morning about uh, a terribly controversial subject. Um, but that's my only guideline. And, and so uh, what I want to talk about this morning actually comes out of a question that was sent in for, for our Redux service. So again, I, I think I can take a, a little bit of time to share a little more about what Redux is for those of you who are kind of new to us. So after most every regular worship service, we have a 45-minute or so Q&A service. Uh, you already got to meet Matt Nicely, who's going to do that service this morning, and, and any question is fair game. Uh, he's an expert, obviously, on creative ventures as a Christian and, and with a justice orientation. So I really encourage you to stay for that this morning. But Redux is just our way of saying, uh, you know, the biblical worldview, the Christian worldview, are the uniquely accurate understanding of the world in which we all live, that God is real as understood in Christian terms. And therefore, any questions or doubts or, or arguments raised against those things, the Bible, Christianity, and God are all big enough to handle those things, okay? So, so this is just our way of saying this is a safe place to raise doubts, ask questions, learn more, uh, because, because God is real and Christianity is true, okay? So... Uh, I don't know how many of you know, but, but what goes on here at Redux is just a small piece of, of the impact of that service because we capture most of the answers uh, from Ken and, and myself and just a variety of guest speakers, and we put those online at askquestions.tv. And just in the last calendar year, 2013, there were 800,000 uploads of, of Redux answers from that website throughout the world. And so what happens here, even if there's only 30 of you that stay for the Q&A, what happens here will, will have a global impact and people all over the world are able to listen to thoughtful Christian answers to, to questions of all types, okay? So the, the question that came in a few weeks ago, and I actually tried to address this in a Redux answer, but I, I thought it was worthy of a little more time. The actual question was, uh, when Jesus performed miracles in his earthly life prior to, the, prior to his death and resurrection, did he do that in his own power because he was God, or did he rely upon the power of the Father at that time? Okay, that's the question that, that started me thinking a little more about this issue of the humanity of Jesus. And, and so hopefully I'll answer that question and, and maybe go a little further. Um, 
by, by trying to share with you what is the historical Christian understanding, believed by the church fathers, hammered out over about the first three or four centuries of, of church life, and, and essentially believed on this issue by, by Christians ever since. We, we don't talk about it a lot in church. It's kind of deep theology, if you will, but I'll try to put it into, into terms that, that make sense um, you know, common language type things. Um, and let me begin by sharing with you the, uh, the chorus of a song that my own kids liked to sing a few years ago. I'm not sure, I, I don't have my finger on the pulse of just how popular this Christian song is, but it's, it's a song called On My Father's Side. And so the, the verse that sets it up is, is the situation in Jesus' life uh, early on, as a boy of 12, he was in the synagogue and, and he was sharing with the rabbis, the learned teachers of his day, and his, his thoughts and his answers were astounding those learned rabbis. And, and so the verse of this song sets it up to where now these folks ask this young 12-year-old Jesus uh, a series of questions uh, to which he replies. And so the first question is, uh, what's your name, son? And Jesus' response in this, this cute song is, well, on my mother's side, my name is Jesus. But on my father's side, they call me Emmanuel, which we all know means God with us. And the next question is, uh, I think, uh, how old are you? And Jesus responds, well, on my mother's side, I'm 12 now. But on my father's side, I've just always been. Uh, the next question is, where are you from? Well, on my mother's side, I'm from Bethlehem. But on my father's side, it's New Jerusalem. And then the last question is, what are your plans? And he responds, well, on my mother's side, I'll be crucified. But on my father's side, in three days, I will rise again and I will sit at my father's side. How many of you are familiar with that song? Not a single person. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it's a cute song, but it's also got a lot of theological truth and depth to it. And so, um, so I'm going to try to get you to the same place by talking a little bit about the history of this, this idea of the humanity of Jesus combined with the deity of Jesus and, and how we end up where we believe as, as historic Christians, okay? Let me, let me open us in prayer so that I don't say anything heretical the rest of the time. I'll, I'll just uh, put the Holy Spirit's blessing on this whole time, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you told us that you are the truth and the way and the life. And, and so uh, we recognize that you care about truth, and we do too. So I would just pray that you would guard my words this morning in this somewhat difficult area, that you'd enable me to uh, speak truth and nothing but truth, and that uh, we would all be open to learning from you and from our perusal of Scripture this morning uh, a little more clearly, a little deeper, uh, what is true about you. Uh, 
we, we thank you for the opportunity to, to look into your word. We thank you for your revelation to us, both in the word and in becoming flesh and dwelling among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, you understand the question. Is, is Jesus using his own power to perform miracles? Is, is he acting out of his divine nature, his, his deity? Or at that time in his life, was he somehow depending upon the, the Father's power to work those miracles, right? And I think what we'll see is that it's, it's kind of a false dichotomy. But the, the historic Christian understanding is, in fact, that Jesus is one person in which two different natures are combined. Okay? Jesus has a human nature and Jesus has a divine nature, but he is still one person. Now, there's a sense in which if we could just repeat that over and over and, and, and not say anything beyond that, but uh, acknowledge and affirm that, then we're right in line with historic Christianity. It's, it's when we try to say more that we're prone to falling off into error of one kind or another. Let me, uh, let me uh, give me permission to go ahead and read a kind of theological thing, but this is the this is the way a, a group of Christians in the late 5th century, so 481 uh, A.D., cashed it out. And I'm not going to take the time to, to say what they mean by each of these statements. And, and I'll try to put this into real words that we understand today. But this is the Chalcedonian definition, which is the result of uh, basically three or four centuries of trying to hammer out the whole of the scripture's teaching on this difficult issue. Difficult because we don't know any other instance where somebody has both a divine and a human nature combined in one person. Um, this is, so, so this is what we call systematic theology. That is, there's no one verse in scripture that says what I just said, that Jesus is one person with two natures, a human and a divine, Right? And, and we, in our day and age, we like to go to, to a single scripture verse that we can pull out and use as a silver bullet for whatever argument we're uh, addressing and that sort of thing. Systematic theology takes all of the relevant scripture passages and, and combines and reconciles them in a way and comes up with something like what I'm about to read you that, that captures the whole teaching of scripture but it, it's not as simple as a single verse. So here's the Chalcedonian definition from uh, 481 AD. Let me say one more thing first, and that is, I'm not asking you to believe this simply because some guys 1,500 years ago came to this conclusion. The fact is that the conclusion that they came to has been over and over again been what we end up on as we, over the centuries, continue to examine the issue. That is, we believe it today because we can look at the same scripture verses and come to the same conclusion and say, you know, they almost 90% of it they got right. Okay, so here it is. Following then the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son, 
the self-same perfect in Godhead, the self-same perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the self-same of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, the self-same coessential with us according to the manhood, like us in all things except sin, before the ages begotten of the Father as to the Godhead, but in the last days, the self-same for us and for our salvation, born of Mary, the virgin Theotokos, as to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved and both concurring into one person and one hypostasis, not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one and the selfsame Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as from the beginning the prophets have taught concerning him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself hath taught us, and as the symbol of the fathers hath handed down to us. That's kind of a fancy way of saying Jesus is one person with both a human and a divine nature united in one in a way that is ultimately somewhat inexplicable to us, right? Um, maybe it would help if we looked at uh, a couple of the, or a couple, three, four of the heresies that have grown out of trying to explain this in more human terms, but really end up outside of what the, the whole of Scripture teaches. And the first one would be Arianism. So Arianism arose in uh, 3rd, 4th century of the church, A.D. And Arianism denies Jesus' full deity. It focuses on Scripture passages like John 3.16 that talk about Jesus as having been begotten, and, and as we usually understand the word beget or begotten, it has to do with giving birth. And so Arius, the, the person whom this heresy is named after, believed that there must have been a point in time where Jesus came into existence. And that flies in the face of a whole lot of scriptures, Old Testament and New, and was denounced as heretical at the Council of Nicaea in 350, uh, 325 A.D. Now, Arianism has raised its head again in more modern times. It's basically what Jehovah's Witnesses are. So Jehovah's Witnesses are a Christian cult. That is, they're heretical. They're outside of true Christianity. And they have the same issues that Arius had. They're modern Arians. And they camp on verses like the, the verses that mention Jesus as being begotten. And they, they run into error that way. Now, the fact of the matter is that I, I read begotten in this Chalcedonian confession. And even those folks who put that together in the 400s misunderstood the relevant passages in a particular way. Um, I didn't put it up there, but the, the Greek word in question is monogenes. Mono meaning one, genes meaning, 
Well, that's exactly where the problem comes in. <laughs> so it, it's kind of the root word of genetics. And, and so this whole idea of, of Jesus having been begotten comes from that monogenes being, uh, being translated as only begotten, which, which led to the confusion with only birthed. Now, modern scholarship says that, that all those folks were wrong, that actually the genes part of monogenes is more closely related to the concept of genus or type or class, not genetics. That, that, the, that if, in fact, John 3.16 wanted to insist that Jesus was brought into being or born at a given time, it would have used a different word, which would have been monogeneto. Okay? So most modern translations will have monogeneus translated as unique or one and only, which is the correct understanding of the word. Jesus is in a class by himself, not born at a particular time. Now, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses point to uh, Psalm 2-7, which, in, in which God, Yahweh, says, You are my beloved son. Uh, this day I have begotten you. Uh, there's still uh, uncertainty about exactly what that passage means when it uses the word that we translate, begotten. And, and the Jehovah's Witnesses point to that verse and say, see, this prophecy about Jesus clearly says that he's going to be brought into being, begotten. Well, the, the, the best response to that is that the New Testament writers who quote Psalm 2-7 have it differently than the Jehovah's Witnesses do. So Paul uh, in Acts 13.33 and the writer to the Hebrews in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 5, verse 5. In those three places, this Psalm 2-7, this, this day I have begotten you, is referred to. And in all three of those passages, it, it is used to refer, it is interpreted by Paul and the writer to the Hebrews as referring to the Father's affirmation of Jesus following the resurrection or, or, or through the resurrection. That is, whatever this begottenness of Jesus means, it occurred when the Father raised Jesus from the dead, not when he became a baby in, in Mary's womb or, or anything like that, okay? So, again, the historic understanding denies Arianism, which in, which in turn denies Jesus' full deity, okay? Real quickly, a couple of other heresies. Uh, Apollinarianism. Uh, is, is addressed in this convoluted thing that I just read you. It's the view that Jesus had a human body, but a divine uh, mind and spirit and will. Um, so this Chalcedonian definition makes it very clear that no, if you look at all of scripture, Jesus had a human body, but he had both a human will, human mind, and a divine will, divine mind. Okay, this is why we get somewhat con seemingly contradictory passages where Jesus says, in, in one case, uh, I want to say it's Mark 13, 32, 
Jesus says, no one knows when the Son of Man returns except the Father alone. In other cases, Jesus demonstrates omniscience, all-knowingness. For instance, right before he calls the disciple Nathaniel, or as he calls the disciple Nathaniel, he points out to Nathaniel that he knew exactly what Nathaniel was doing and saying across a space and time that that would require the divine nature of Jesus to be employed at the time. So Jesus has two minds, two uh, wills as part of his two natures, okay? So Apollinarianism uh, was rejected. Nestorianism is the idea that uh, Jesus was somehow two separate persons. Again, the the, the, the historic Christian understanding, what we believe here at Antioch, is that Jesus is one person with two natures. Nestorianism is the, is the trying to separate him into two persons, and, and that doesn't fly with, with the whole of Scripture. Uh, another one would be monophysitism or Eutychianism, and this was the idea that somehow Jesus' divine and human natures came together to form a third nature, something entirely new. And again, that doesn't do justice to all the relevant scriptures. It was rejected at, at the uh, council that led to this Chalcedonian definition. Okay, so let's keep our question in mind. Did Jesus do these things in his own, do miracles in his own power or in the power of the Father? According to what I've been trying to share with you as the Christian understanding Jesus did have all power, even when he was a baby in the womb, okay? We read in Colossians 1 that Jesus is sovereign over all creation, that, God, that Jesus is holding things together, sustaining the laws of physics, if you will. And the Christian understanding would be that that was still the case, that his divine nature was doing that even while he was a young child in his human nature, okay? This is difficult, I know. It, it's, it's the sort of thing that we don't like to talk about today, though the church has always been much more free and willing to talk about Jesus' dual natures. The reason we don't like to talk about it today is that we live in a culture in which if we can't fully understand or fully explain something, we don't want to go there because, because rationality and reasoning are, are the height of virtues in our culture. But the fact of the matter is, if, if we could completely understand the mysteries of the incarnation and, and of the Trinity, then we would be creating a God in our own understanding, in our own image. At some point, we have to humbly come before the teaching of Scripture and say, yeah, I can only go so far here, and then I have to, to say that you're God and I'm not, okay? Um, so let me talk about one more recent theory that, that gets this whole idea wrong. And, and what I'm really getting at is, is these attributes of the Godhead, like omniscience, being all-knowing, and omnipresence, being everywhere at once, and omnipotence, being all-powerful, 
What I'm suggesting, what, what Christianity has always affirmed, is that Jesus himself, even when he came to earth as a human, still had all of these attributes that he'd always had as part of the Godhead, right? He was still all-powerful and all-knowing, even when he was walking the earth in a human body, okay? Now, um, there's a theory called the kenosis theory that arose in, in Germany in the mid-1800s and got taken up by English uh, theologians in the late 1800s. And it focuses on uh, a passage in Philippians 1, uh, sorry, Philippians 2, verse 7, uh, which says basically, so, so this is an argument on Paul's part, trying to get the Philippian believers to follow Christ in being humble. And, and it says that Jesus, follow the example of Jesus, I'm paraphrasing obviously, follow the example of Jesus who, though being in the form of God, did not uh, think it worthwhile to hold on to the equality of God, but in the King James Version, but emptied himself and became a man, okay? If, if you've got the ESV or the NIV or the RSV, I, I don't think it'll say emptied himself. It'll say something like made himself nothing, okay? But this King James Version, this idea of emptying, which is the Greek word kenosis, where, where I got the title of this theory, kenosis theory, says, well, maybe what that's referring to is that Jesus emptied himself, voluntarily set aside some of these divine attributes while he was on earth. That doesn't really fly with, with all of Scripture. It doesn't fly, first of all, because it, it arose late in church history, again, just the 1800s. Nobody before that believed that that's what this passage meant. Um, it... It also doesn't fly mainly because of the context. What, what Paul is using Jesus as having emptied himself to argue for is that the Philippian believers be like him. And yet Paul certainly wasn't asking the Philippian believers to voluntarily set aside some of their attributes in order to follow Jesus. Okay, so there's a whole lot of reasons why we reject this idea that Jesus set aside some of his divine attributes when he came to earth. So here's really what I, the, kind of the thesis statement for what I've been sharing here with you today. I think it's important to understand that having both a human and a divine nature combined in a mysterious union, there was good reason that prior to his death and resurrection, Jesus chose to emphasize his humanity over his deity. That is, he, he appears to have been reluctant, especially with large crowds, but, but even with his own close circle, to demonstrate his deity more than he had to. Okay, and I just want to take you through a couple of passages that show that. The first one is in John 2, and, um, and this is early in his ministry. His mother's still with him, so he hasn't even moved out from where he was raised, and, and it's the wedding at Cana. And when I say wedding at Cana, you automatically think good wine, and, and Jesus 
took, took some jugs of water and performed a miracle, turned that water into wine, right? But if you read the passage, uh, it's his mother who maybe uniquely among everybody there, well, I, I will say, uniquely among everybody there, his mother was the one who had reason to believe that he was God, right? Because she'd had an angel tell her so, and she'd never forgotten that. I don't think you would either. Um, so she, she perceives that there's a problem at this wedding, probably somebody she cares about, that the wine has all run out. And she goes to Jesus and says, there's no wine. And Jesus' response, if I can paraphrase again, is, why are you telling me? What? He's, he really says, what has that got to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Okay? Now, we can understand that to mean he doesn't want to perform a, a miracle early on in his ministry because then he might get killed prematurely. But, and, and, and people do understand it that way. But what I'm suggesting is this is part of a pattern in which Jesus wants to be obedient in his humanity at this point more than he wants to, to do superfluous miracles. He does, for the sake of his mother, go ahead and turn the water into wine and perform a miracle. But he was reluctant to do so. He wanted to camp in his human nature rather than put his divine nature on display for everybody to see. Uh, a second instance would be from Matthew 8, where he ends up calming the storm. Jesus is asleep in the boat. Is that mainly his divine nature or his human nature? There's a huge storm going on. All of, the, all of his disciples are freaking out. They think they're going to die on the Sea of Galilee. And these are guys, half of whom have made their living on the Sea of Galilee. They know a, a perilous storm when they see one. But they have to wake Jesus up to get him to calm the waves. And, and I don't, that, that's not why they woke him up. They, they didn't realize yet that he was deity. But they knew he was special and they wanted to share with him the idea that they believed they were going to perish. Okay? <laughs> Jesus' response upon being awakened from a, very, from a sleep that was very much in his human nature says, O ye of little faith and proceeds for their sake, not because he set out from the get-go to perform this miracle, but for their sake, he calms the waves and the winds, and they are no longer afraid. Okay? Again, it, I, I would suggest there's a reluctance on his part to act out of his divine nature, and, and he was living the moment in his human nature until they, until they awoke him. Another example would come from Matthew 17, 9, which is uh, part of the account of his transfiguration. So he had two or three of his closest disciples with him. They went up on a mountaintop, and both Moses and Elijah appeared, and Jesus' own body uh, shone in, a, in an otherworldly light in such a way that his glory, his divine nature, was clearly revealed to those select two or three disciples. So, so for whatever reason, his divine nature was manifest to these three guys, but Jesus' words to them were, tell no one about this until the Son of Man, Jesus himself, is raised from the dead. So this, this fits right with what I'm trying to convince you of, that, that during, 
in, in the run-up up to crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus wanted to highlight and emphasize his human nature, even though he had the power to calm storms and change water into wine. He had the divine nature on which he could call for knowledge or power or whatever. Now, for, the, for his disciples and for all the Jewish folk of that day who were fiercely monotheistic, Contrary to all the peoples around them, the Greeks and the Romans who had a plethora of, of deities and gods, the Jewish person knew that there was one true God and was fiercely adamant about that belief. And what really distinguished in the Jewish mind that one true God from all other beings, from angels and demons and false gods and idols and, and created animals and, and human beings, what distinguished the one true God from all those other beings was his role as creator and sustainer of the universe. And it was the fact that even if reluctantly, Jesus manifested that same power over created things by turning water into wine, by calming the storm, by re restoring sight to blind people, that these Jewish people came to nuance their strict monotheism to eventually include Jesus and eventually the Holy Spirit as somehow part of that one true God. Okay? But again... Jesus is focusing on his uh, human side rather than acting out of his divine nature throughout this time period. And let me give you a couple, uh, maybe four reasons why I think this is. Things that the humanity of Jesus accomplished or, or reasons that the humanity of Jesus, the human nature of Jesus was necessary, okay? And the first one is that it, it allowed him to live a life of obedience despite temptation that is meaningful to us, okay? In other words, if, if he just always acted out of his divine nature, then he couldn't really be tempted in the way that we are. So Jesus camped in his humanity in order to actually fulfill the call to be the uniquely sinless human being to undo the sinfulness of Adam and all of his descendants, okay? So the, the Bible tells us um, in John 15, 10, Jesus says at the end of his life, I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. We also learn in Hebrews 4, 15 that Jesus was tempted in every respect, just as we are. So he empathizes with us in temptation because he endured every temptation as a man, out of his human nature. And in fact, he endured temptation much more than any of us because the minute we give in to temptation, we haven't truly endured it in the way Jesus in his human nature did. Moving on quickly, the second reason that Jesus' humanity was necessary was in order that he would be able to teach morality and exemplify a good moral life 
from the same perspective as, as the human perspective in which we all live, okay? Um, thirdly, and, and this is more of a um, theological issue, and I won't go into it, but it was the fact that he was truly human, fully human, uh, that enabled his sinlessness, his obedience, to qualify him as a worthwhile substitution for the penalty that we all deserve. Okay, so his atoning death on the cross was only made reasonable and sufficient and satisfactory because in his human nature, he obeyed fully, lived a sinless life, and therefore could be a perfect sacrifice, a, a lamb without blemish, if you will. Fourthly, and, and, and this kind of ties back to what's going on in L.A. this weekend, it was in his humanity that he entered in to the suffering of humanity of this world. And it was in his human nature that he experienced injustice as many humans do today, okay? This is critical. Uh, you know, arguably the biggest intellectual object to embracing Christianity today, I mean, there's a lot of superficial ones, but to me, the, the sincere one is, what do you do with all the suffering in the world if God is all good, all powerful, and, and such? Well, ultimately, the answer to that is that, that God took his own medicine, that Jesus entered in to the suffering of humanity of this world in a way that allows him to empathize with us. Uh, one, of, one of the things that comes out of this whole conversation of justice that's, that we've been spearheading the, these last few years is, is the idea that you, you never really understand injustice until you enter into a relationship of empathy with the person experience inju experiencing injustice. That's what Jesus did by, by acting out of his human nature throughout that time. He experienced the injustice of false accusations and spitting and beatings and curses and, and a, a false trial and a false execution. So two weekends ago, Ken and I were invited to go down uh, to Honduras, the poorest uh, country in Central America, and, and to get a, get a look at a justice ministry that's been going on down there for the last few years. And, and I don't have time to tell you all I'd like to share with you about this amazing ministry. It's called uh, Association for a More Just Society. But they are, they are not only helping the victims of injustice, but they're changing systems at the national level in Honduras, uh, undoing the systems of justice that are in place that are causing victims to arise. Uh, and, and they're doing this in, in the issue of health care and education and land rights and, and all these great things. But probably what's what was most amazing to Ken and me is, is that the couple who founded it, uh, an American couple, Kurt and Joanne, are really following Christ's example in this whole idea of incarnation. This, this whole idea that Jesus came and suffered injustice himself. So this couple has, has spearheaded this organization that has succeeded in 
incredibly lowering the homicide rate in this one large community where the homicide rate was off the charts. And part of their success is that Kurt and Joanne moved into that neighborhood. And I'm not talking about into a gated community part of that neighborhood. They moved into that neighborhood. We went to their house, and it's surrounded by other little plots with, with a chicken in the living room. And they, they chose to move into that dangerous neighborhood with the highest homicide rates on earth. And that's just an example of how they're following Christ, who by camping in his human nature, entered into our sufferings. So there's a real sense in which the, the death and resurrection was the point of change. That following his resurrection, Jesus was much more open to affirming in large crowds that he was in fact God. Okay, we, we can find all kinds of passages prior to that where he, he clearly was God. He forgave sins of the paralytic lowered through the roof. He, his favorite self-referral uh, was the Son of Man, which was a clear indication to the Jewish mind that he was the prophesied Messiah of Daniel 7. Okay? In fact, when, the, when he was on trial before the high priest, who was asking him, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Part of his response was, yes, you will see the Son of Man, referring to himself, coming in glory on the clouds. And and whereas we, we would like to hear him say, I'm the son of God, for the Jewish people, for the high priest, his calling himself the son of man was clearly a claim to deity. It was at that point that the high priest said, we don't need any witnesses. He, he tore his clothes and, and all that stuff. We don't need any witness, witnesses. You just heard his blasphemy. Okay. But after the resurrection... Jesus was much more willing to allow his divine nature to show through. He was willing to accept worship and praise. And that's because at that point, he had completed his mission and had the Father's affirmation in the fact that he was raised from the dead and, and accepted as the uh, satisfactory atoning sacrifice. So everything changed for Jesus at the at the death at the at his crucifixion and resurrection having faithfully obeyed and lived a sinless life so you know old testament bible scholars see a, a particular event in jewish history as as the watermark event in the old testament that is all of the the prophets and writers of the old testament that followed that event have a slightly different perspective on, on what the Messiah is going to be, what deliverance means to the Jewish nation, a different perspective about God's relation with his chosen people, than do the, the kings and prophets and, and psalmists that write before that event. And that event is when God allowed his chosen people in, let's say, 589 B.C., to be conquered and carried off into exile, and God allowed the temple to be destroyed, right? So 589 B.C. is the watershed mark event in all of the Old Testament. But the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important event 
in, in all of Jewish history. Even though there are many Jews still today who don't recognize it as such, the fact is that because he was the promised Messiah, it was his atoning death and, and raising from the dead that is the most significant event in all of Jewish history. I think it's obvious to you that it's the most significant event in all of church history because it birthed the church. It was the fact that they saw Jesus raised from the dead that led those terrified, uh, confused disciples to become bold preachers willing to die for their having seen Jesus rise from the dead. That's the birth of the church. Most objective historians, that is objective in that they're not, they don't have an anti-religious bias, would also recognize that the death and resurrection of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, is the most significant event in all of human history. That it, it changed the playing field. That it's Christianity who not only outlasted the great Roman Empire, but took Christianity throughout the world, and with it, literacy and the founding of universities and schools and the founding of benevolence organizations, hospitals and orphanages and, and leper colonies. And it's, it's Christians that have birthed all of those things that we in America take for granted as what it means to be civilized. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus that has caused that to spread throughout the world. Uh, in, in the class I teach on science in the Bible, I make a, a pretty strong point of the fact that it was within a Christian worldview that modern science was born, that this progressive, unending progress in discovering truth about the world in which we live, even if carried out largely by atheists today, only makes sense and had its origin in a Christian worldview. And, and I don't have time to take you through all that, but... The last thing I would say, uh, well, second last thing I would say, is that not only is the death and resurrection of Jesus the most important event in Jewish history, in church history, in all of human history, it's also the most important event in all of cosmic history. That is, the Bible tells us that before the foundations of the earth, God had planned to send his son in this mysterious incarnation that he would die a substitutionary death on the cross and be raised from the dead. And at the other end of time spectrum, we see a picture in Revelation 5 of eternity future in which we'll all be praising God and the referent of that praise will be the lamb who was slain. We'll be looking back on that same event foretold before the foundations of the earth the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important event in all of cosmic history. And then what I've shared for you today, I think, is that that same event is the most significant event in Jesus' own history, in Jesus' own life. His obedience up to the time of the cross was what, his willingness to remain largely in his human nature, even though he simultaneously, in a way we can't fully understand, had divine nature, power, omniscience, his ability to camp in his human nature up until and through the crucifixion was what enabled him to then step out of resurrection into a place where he could, he could manifest and, and allow everyone to acknowledge his divine nature, okay? 
So I'm not the Redux uh, person today. I hope you have lots of good questions <laughs> for Matt, but you'll have to catch me in a future uh, Redux session if you've got some questions about what I just shared today. But uh, hopefully that, that will deepen your understanding of what Christ did for us uh, and deepen our praise for him as we go about our, our time this week. I'm going to... Um, close us in prayer here. Court's going to come up and uh, give us some special music while we take the offering, and, uh, and then we'll probably sing one more worship song all together. So let's pray. Creator and Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit, we just, uh, we humbly come before you acknowledging that there's mystery in, in the sum of who you are, and, and we we thank you that you've given us your word that we might tease out as much as you have uh, designed for us to understand. We pray that you would continue to give us a heart for, for going deeper and, and to understanding you better. We acknowledge that as we, as we do understand the Godhead and, and Christ's person uh, more deeply and better, that it just leads us to higher levels of, of awe and wonder and, and praise. And so we would, we would just ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to unravel these things to us and enable us to know you deeper, that we might love you and worship you deeper. We pray that we would take that worship throughout this week and into all the relationships that you bring our way. We give you the glory. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.